Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Atheists, agnostics, long haired weirdos, short haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government, love the government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm political scientist Michael Baranowski. My guest today is Juliet Hooker, the Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science at Brown University. Professor Hooker is a political theorist specializing in racial justice and has authored multiple books, the latest of which is Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss, which we'll be discussing today. Juliet Hooker, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I thought we'd start with the beginning. Listeners know I like to, I focus on titles at first, generally speaking. And I think it's very appropriate here because uh, the title of your book, Black Grief, White Grievance, and the Politics of Loss, three very fundamental concepts right there that I thought we should start by unpacking, starting with Black grief. Could you explain how you conceptualize that? Absolutely. So Black grief is exemplified by, most recently, the movement for Black lives and the protests against police violence, which are the latest example of a tradition of how violent death and the subsequent public mourning um, then becomes a spur for Black political mobilization. So basically what I try to show in the book is that historically grief turned grievance has been a central catalyst for Black politics and that this has been, you know, has become a kind of traditional form of Black activism. And much of it has has been uh, mobilized in response to death and uh, you know, extreme white violence, right? We see this with um, anti-lynching activists in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, which who use photographs of lynching victims to spur anti-racist mobilization. And then in the 1950s, right, we see the way in which the public funeral that Mamie Till Mobley held for her son Emmett um, becomes um, one of the iconic examples of how Black politics is activated by Black women's grief transformed into grievance. So part of what I'm trying to show in the book is that this tradition of activism has produced, you know, enormous progress towards racial justice, but it also places a burden on Black communities, um, 
because not only is racial violence ongoing and so it continues to have this work continues to have to be done, but it doesn't allow, um, you know, black people full humanity because instead of simply being able to grieve, they have to make this quick turn into becoming activists in order to get right. justice um, for their the losses they've suffered. And then there's white grievance. And I never really thought about this until you pointed out in the book that grief and grievance have a common root, but there's a critical distinction between those two things. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. So, you know, they do have grief and grievance, the same etymological origin, and they're both responses to loss, right? So grief refers to sorrow after a loss and grievance um, to a wrong or a hardship that's seen as the ground for a complaint. Um, and especially when a loss is the result of harm or injustice, people move from grief to grievance, right? So it's not, um, it's something that should not have happened. But grievance can also be a response, and I think this is what you're pointing to, to a loss that is real or perceived, mm -hmm. right? So, this is central for my account of white grievance because I talk about how white grievance is an example of an anticipatory form of loss, right? So if you look at some of the animating concerns of people who are, um, who, who are expressing these sentiments in public, there are all these fears about, for example, what democratic, what demographic change is going to do to the United States, right? There's this sense that it's a country under siege that you have, you know, even think about the language of something like immigrant invasion, right? So there's the sense that people are invading and displacing um, rightful US citizens. And so, and this is not to say, right, that there aren't, you know, losses that people are suffering, but it's to say that some of the things that seem to be galvanizing them politically seem to be these anticipatory losses that haven't actually happened. I mean, even if demographic change does occur, we don't know how that's going to play out in terms of um, electoral politics. So it's really, um, so that idea of anticipatory loss is really central to how I think about white grievance. And, you know, you bring up that concept of loss. And as I was thinking about that, it, it occurred to me that well, I wonder if loss is even the right term to describe, uh, I guess, what I call the black political experience, at least most of it. And what I mean is that when I think of loss, that must mean that there has to be the possession of something that's taken away. And, and maybe that might be true for the white political experience sort of largely. But I, you see what I'm saying? Maybe I'm, maybe mm -hmm. I'm being too semantically picky here. I, I don't know. But I just wanted to get your get your thoughts on that. No, I think that's a very good point, right? So I think we do often think about loss as about, right, the loss of a possession. But um, if you look at the, you know, the um, Oxford English Dictionary definition of loss, okay. right, it talks about the fact of losing, right? So, which is, of course, you know, kind of central um, to democracy. We all lose in democracy. And it also refers to the the law the loss that happens when we're defeated 
or to the failure to gain or obtain something. So in that sense, I think you're right that the, and, and this again goes back to a point that I make in the book, right? That I think of black grief and white grievance as two responses to loss, but right. they're not the same, right? So, um, so in a sense, black grief is referring to this sense of loss as the failure to gain, you know, still equal citizenship. We still don't have a full multiracial democracy in the United States, whereas um, white grievance is really about is about the sense of loss as something that that I think white citizens felt like they did um, and in fact did possess. Um, but I turned to loss because I found that some of the other categories that political theorists were using, such as mourning or harm, weren't really um, sufficient for describing um, what I was thinking about as political loss, right? Um, so, you know, loss, in my understanding, isn't simply suffering. Um, it's um, it's also not simply right interchangeable with harm because by harm or injury we generally understand a wrong that was in unjustly inflicted or suffered um and so the focus becomes on intent um and i think that when i talk about loss and political loss in particular in the book what i'm talking about is not the the, the sort of universal experience that we've all had of loss, right? We've all had our preferred candidate lose an election. We've all, you know, um, suffered deaths in the family or lost a job. Um, so that is universal. But by political loss, I mean losses that are clearly political, electoral losses, for example, or losses that are the result of state action or inaction. So, um, you know, when you have structural inequalities or systemic disparities that create losses, then those individual losses become political. Um, and similarly, losses can also become political when people mobilize around them, right? Not all losses are visible. And so when people, um, when victims seek to have their sense of injustice recognized and mobilized to make their losses visible, they're making a claim that those losses require collective response. So a good example of this is, you know, if you think about September 11th, which um, those attacks, right, were by foreign actors immediately understood as a, as a loss, a national loss. But if you think about something like Me Too, it took all this mobilization by activists for people to recognize those personal experiences as a collective problem. Right. And, you know, that, that leads me to this, I guess, issue of how I interpret it when reading your book. I was trying to understand how different communities might experience loss. And I think your book sheds some interesting light on that. Because, for instance, I, I think you argue that context matters a lot. Like, for instance, if in a case where uh, a police officer shoots an unarmed black person, well, that means something, but when you consider the context of, well, that's part of sort of a long string of shootings that's stretched back into the past and is likely to stretch forward into the future, that sort of changes the environment, right, and makes it a different thing in some way. Is that, is that kind of – is that what you're getting at there? 
Absolutely. So I, I talk about this idea when I'm discussing, you know, why standard psychoanalytic accounts of mourning don't capture certain kinds of loss, including black grief. And 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 one of the reasons is because the way in which we typically understand grief is that right successful mourning it requires that you overcome loss right you move through the five stages of grief but what happens if loss is ongoing right so what happens if you are watching the umpteenth video of a person who um, an unarmed black person shot by a police officer like at that point it's not right there is and and there's still has not been um, a way to stop them, right? There is a sense of the compounding of loss that is, I think, um, quite different and that is important for understanding um, Black grief in particular. And there's also, I think, a distinction that you draw in the book between justified and unjustified political loss. And you point out that, well, as being a, a citizen in a democratic society, you have to accept justified political loss. And so that leads, of course, to the question of, well, how do we distinguish between justified and unjustified political loss, which is something you get into in the book. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, this is, again, a really important, um, a really important question. You know, at a basic level, um, you know, if you think about um, electoral losses, right? If there hasn't been cheating, right? If there hasn't been, um, you know, uh, malfeasance, right? That those are legitimate losses. Um, more broadly, I think um, one of the ways in which we justify the, the fact that people have to accept loss in democracy is that losses are legitimate in a democracy if they're equally distributed in the sense that, um, you know, the the rules aren't supposed to be rigged, right? We're all supposed to be able to lose. Of course, historically, um, race has shaped those um, those outcomes in a way that haven't actually led to a kind of equal um, distribute or random distribution of loss. Um, and so the other kind of loss that I think is legitimate is when you have you know, losses of unearned advantages, which are also legitimate because they're restoring fairness and correcting an injustice, right? So, um, you know, so if you think about the 1960s and the removal of and the civil rights legislation that removed barriers to political participation for African-Americans, there were certainly um, white Southerners who experienced those as losses, but that was a legitimate loss. And, and and so you're but but you're not saying when you talk about equal distribution of loss, you're not saying that every view should win some of the time. It's not a it's not a number crunching type of thing. Like for instance, if say there's a group that that pushes for generations to have a, a voting age of ten or something, you know, whatever ridiculous, and they never win, that's not an unjust loss, right? It's not just numerical sort of calculation here. No, um, it's not, right? It's not saying, oh, you know, everyone should lose 5% of the time. And then if we all do, then then that means that it's legitimate. Um, I think 
Uh, quantifying loss can be an important tool in making it visible, right? So this is definitely a strategy that people use um, to to make to bring home the enormity of a loss. If you think about, you know, something like the coronavirus pandemic, and um, you know, in the you know when we first hit a hundred thousand dead, I don't know if you remember um, that the um, the New York Times had this whole. Um, you know, devoted the whole front page to listing the names of the victims and to marking the occasion. And this becomes, right, this kind of quantifying of loss is a way that a strategy that um, that that we use to try to to make people reckon with um, with the enormity of, of a loss. But it also um, doesn't capture everything, right? Um, so, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is, that white grievance, for example, as a form of anticipatory losses is, is expecting a loss to come and reacting to it in the present, but you can't quantify it because it hasn't happened yet. And it's also, I also make another distinction about symbolic versus material loss, which is that, you know, a lot of the, the things that are animating people, if you think about the culture wars, are these symbolic losses that are really about a sense of you know, displacement or a feeling of, you know, um, loss of uh, cultural or social power, which are difficult to quantify. Um, I think in thinking about this in terms of of Black grief, um, you know, we also have to think about how, um, you know, for Black communities, some losses are impossible to truly reckon with, right? There's some harms that can't be repaired. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but that the enormity of those losses can never actually be fully repaired if you think about something like the legacies of slavery, for example. Right. And then there's loss, but there's also how we respond to that loss. And that differs a lot in different communities. And there's at one point in the book, you write about, I love this phrase, the dominant official romantic narrative of the civil rights movement. And that really caught my attention. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what that narrative is and why it matters today, generations after that movement. Absolutely. So if you, you know, you think back to, um, you know, when the uh, movement for Black Lives, um, the Black Lives Matter protests began happening, there was a lot of critique that, that um, you know, these protesters weren't protesting in the right way, right? That they were not being civil, that they weren't being total, fully nonviolent. And this, and, and people specifically referred to how they were not following the script of the civil rights movement, of civil disobedience, of this idea of the civil rights movement as having been, you know, so civil that they made a demand, it was accepted, and, you know, um, it was all very, um, you know, um, harmoniously done. But of course, this isn't how it happened at all, right? I mean, if we think about the reason um, you know, that people, that civil disobedience was powerful was because they were being attacked, right? Because they were suffering violence and um, and they were seen as radicals. They were seen as, you know, as pushing these untimely demands of asking for too much too soon. Um, MLK, who right now has a national holiday, was 
deeply unpopular in his time um, and was, you know, described as an outside agitator. Um, and so I think we now, in retrospect, have this, you know, this romantic official narrative of these well-dressed, um, you know, peaceful protesters who transformed, right, public opinion. But in fact, it was a very contested and, and messy process. And, 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 and they actually were precisely challenging the status quo. Um, and so I think it's really interesting how we've forgotten about those elements of, of that moment. And I feel like this goes along with what I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, originating this, of what some people have called the Disneyfication of Dr. King and his message, especially later on in his, in his lifetime, where it's just sort of this, uh, the, the more radical elements are ignored in favor of this thing that's just much more palatable to the majority, I guess, at this point. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about, you know, um, particularly during his later years, and you think about things like the Poor People's Campaign, his critique of the Vietnam War, I mean, I, and and the fact that he moves from the South to the North and starts doing these campaigns to try to address um, economic inequality in in urban areas in the North and, and is being stoned and, um, you know, um, in for the... And, um, really criticized for those efforts. I think, um, he, you know, I think he was making a, a really much more radical challenge to, um, to, to U.S. right to the U.S. public, and we tend to forget about particularly his political economic critique and the way in which he moves from fighting segregation in the South to then saying there are other forms of racism in the United States, and we still have racial discrimination in the North that needs to be addressed as well. Yeah. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And how we, what we perceive as loss and how we then respond to it is also going to depend a lot, as you point out in the book, as to what our 
what you call baseline entitlement assumptions are. And in the book, you argue that those assumptions are going to be different, generally speaking, if you're white or you're black in America. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yes. So, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that because, you know, this is a country that has been shaped by racial hierarchy and, and white supremacy, that the expectations um, of white priority have been a part of U.S. history, right? This idea that the preferences, the interests of whites as a group should dominate policy discussions. Um, and this is, I think, has meant that, um, you know, I think a lot of, um, not all, but I think there is a sense in which um, people, some white people have developed a zero sum view of politics, right? Where a gain by another group is a loss for them. And this, I think, leads to also a sense that gains for, for, for non-white groups are, um, are, are experienced as, um, as a displacement from their rightful place at the center of U.S. politics, right? Um, and I think this, you know, so the, the pattern, right, has been that historically Black people have endured a lot of losses and have generally, you know, responded peacefully, um, uh, whereas whites as a group have not had to learn um, to deal with loss um, because they've had more power and have often met what they viewed as losses uh, um, with very... Um, with violence or with outright resistance. Um, and I think that, you know, this leads actually to this disparity in um, in the ability of people to act politically and what we see as legitimate responses to, um, you know, to, as, so there is a sense, right, in which, you can, um, if you're a white person who feels displaced, you can um, display white grievance. You can, you know, enact all of these um, these these forms of, of racial resentment. But in order to have their um, their grievances heard, black protesters have to be civil. They can't be angry. They have to do it in terms that aren't going to be challenging for white audiences. Um, so this is another way in which you see this playing out. Now, there's another important concept we haven't gotten to in the book that I want to turn to now, something you call the politics of refusal. And, and, if someone hears that for the first time, they might think it means retreating from the political system, and that's not at all what you're getting at. But I, I was hoping you could talk about that concept and why it's one of the central themes of your book. Yeah, it's a central theme in the book because it ended up, you know, coming up in, in all of the chapters. And because it has become a, an important concept um, for people who study black politics, you know, in chapter one, I end up, which looks at um, white grievance, I end up tracing the way this is a form of white refusal and, and the cost that this um, has for U.S. democracy. Um, I also argue in, in chapter two of the book, which looks at the history of Black protest, that um, Black 
politics should refuse expectations of political heroism. Um, and in chapter four, um, I argue that, which looks at how maternal grief has um, really um, been central to black, to black political mobilization, I argue that we need to refuse um, instrumentalize um, accounts of black grief that um, that see it as a way of repairing the wrongs of racial injustice only. Um, and so basically, I think refusal for me isn't the abandonment of politics or a retreat from the world, but it's a rejection of instrumental approaches to black loss that see it only um, see it only as a means of um, shoring up white democracy and, and perfecting right. white democracy. Um, so in a sense, it's a it's about the refusal of exchanging black suffering for, um, you know, for white identification, which might lead to racial progress. Right. In a way, it almost seems like it's it's refusing to accept the rules of the game as they're often constituted, which put blacks and other non-white groups uh, in instances at sort of a, a systematic disadvantage. Is that, am I, am I reading that correctly? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Another interesting point you make uh, at some point in the book is you write, racism has narrowed the political imaginations of both black and white citizens. And I just found that really intriguing, and I really – I hope that you can comment on that, kind of expand on that here. Yeah, so, you know, as I was talking about earlier, there has been this expectation that Black people, for example, will turn their grief into grievance, that after suffering the a loss, um, they will become activists. And in many cases, I think, um, you know um, – Black people have taken this expectation, placed this expectation on themselves. If you look at somebody like Mamie Tilmobili, she talked about feeling like she was called by God to give meaning to the death of her son by making sure that it didn't happen to the rest of her people, right? And so I think this, you know, one of the things that I mean when I say we need to um, expand our political imaginations or that um, that racism has narrowed our political imaginations is that in this case, right, um, that for um, Black communities, they have taken on this expectation that they will become these political heroes and that they're, in many cases, they've taken this on, that everyone has, but that they will play this role in U.S. democracy. Um, and And so that's one thing one way in which I think that is um, is happening. On the other hand, I think it's narrowed white political imaginations, I think, um, by, I think, also making it difficult for people to see how public policies that could help everyone um, are... Um, are also in their interest. So, you know, I was reading the... Um, the newspaper today, and there was an article about, um, you know, uh, Republican-led states that are refusing um, funds for um, 
um, to feed poor children. Right. And the, you know, and I think this was Mississippi, the, the rationale was that, um, you know, it was because there was this um, ideological objection to welfare payments. And, you know, if you look at the data, right, it shows that most people on welfare are actually white. And, um, and this, and feeding poor children is something that would help a lot of, um, a lot of children. Um, and yet, I think this is an example of how when, when this zero sum mentality or thinking that, you know, welfare is something that, um, you know, um, particularly minorities use, right? Um, and, and, and that it leads to people being unproductive and um, dependent on the state, that then you end up adopting these policies um, that actually hurt hurt whites as well, um, because you you have this, you know, this racialized notion of um, of that the state should not be doing things for certain groups. And so I think this is for me an example of, of this this problem with how um, white political imaginations have also been constrained. Now, I think there are some people who have uh, gotten to this point. Uh, I know one of my, my co-hosts, Jay, would say, well, and he said this before, wait a second, how, I want to challenge a fundamental assumption that uh, you're making, and I guess I make as well, is that, that no racist or white supremacist society would you know, elect a black man president, not just once, but twice. And you could take a look, the current vice president, right? A black woman. We have two black Supreme Court justices. And this idea of looking at so many successful black people at the upper reaches of politics, that this would not happen in a society that is that is white supremacist or racist. And I'm sure you hear this argument a lot. How do you respond to this sort of thing? Yeah. So, you know, I think if you look at the, you know, the data, one of the things that you you see is that, of course, there are still, you know, enormous racial disparities in the United States. And yes, there are two, um, you know, there are Supreme Court justices. Um, but if you look at the data on things like, for example, wealth inequality, um, there are still huge gaps in um in black and white wealth and and you can say well this is the result of lack of effort on the part of um of black people but in fact we know that it's actually the result of you know um decades of state policy um going back to you know we know for most americans the main source of wealth is their home and we know that there was redlining and you know that there are disparities in mortgage lending we know that black people still get lower appraisals for their home um today um you know there are lawsuits um about that in various states at the moment and so this idea that we've somehow overcome all of the ways in which racism is perpetrated in the United States because there are, you know, a few black, you know, black, prominent black, you know, um, elected officials or judicial appointees or, you know, even a black billionaire, I think, um, flies in the face of the continued racist disparities that 
um, that continue to shape U.S. society. I mean, another thing to look at is, you know, if you look at the criminal justice system and the disparities that have been well documented there, um, or if you look at the, you know, the dilution of, um, of minority voting power in the United States, you know, the um, political scientist Sultan Hajnal has this um, this book where he argues that, you know, the policy preferences of white Americans tend to win out over those of all other groups. And that the, the one thing that can explain that is actually race. And so I think there are all these ways in which, um, you know, racial disparities continue to shape the lives of people in the United States. There are still huge disparities um, in maternal and infant mortality. So if it, you know, so the question for me is not, you know, um, we have a, you know, um, we've had a black president. It was also the time when you had, you know, this huge mobilization against police violence directed disproportionately at black people. So electing Barack Obama didn't do anything about that. I feel like a lot of people maybe don't give enough weight to the amount of time it takes for some of these disparities, even after they're perhaps corrected. Things like you mentioned redlining and and the the importance of building up generational wealth and being able to transfer that and the advantages and connections and so forth. That's the sort of thing that isn't necessarily fixed even generations later because of the knock-on effects. And I feel like that's not given near enough focus as, as perhaps it should be by a lot of folks. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that um, that has happened, and I write about this in the, in the book as well, is that we tend to focus, um, you know, we ne- so I think today we think about racism in two primary ways, right? We think about it um, interpersonal interpersonally. So we think about it in terms of, you know, people saying offensive things about other people or, you know, or, or, or microaggressions that happen when people interact with people of different races. Or the other way in which we, we think about it is in terms of these kind of spectacular acts of violence, right? So, um, so the killing of, um, of Black people by the police when they were not armed or not resisting, right? Um, but in fact, you know, most of the way in which people experience racism day to day is in these much less visible, much less, um, you know, um, um, you know, kind of um, quotidian daily ways in which it's it's hard to to focus on a single perpetrator who was, um, you know. Yeah had kind of racist intent as opposed to, as you say, the, the, the sort of ongoing legacies um, and, and, and systemic disparities that continue to get perpetuated. Yeah. A little bit ago, you, you referenced some of these people who point out, uh, point to culture as an issue. And I'm sure you've heard these arguments. I know you've heard these arguments too. The argument that, well, uh, the, uh, we have some issues between black and white communities, but to a certain extent, they can be explained not by 
political issues, but by cultural differences. People talk about uh, absent fathers, uh, this idea that being educationally ambitious is, uh, quote unquote, acting white and, and, and all that sort of thing. And I want to get your reaction to that as well. So I think one thing that I would say is that, um, you know, it's undoubtedly the case that, um, you know, that there are ways in which if you have um, communities that are impoverished, that they develop certain cultural patterns that are perhaps not helpful um, for, you know, achieving certain kinds of success and that this isn't, um, this is not only true of Black people. I mean, you see some of the same critiques being made today of the white working class, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but I think to focus on those factors is to, you know, look away from actually the fact that we live in a society with enormous economic inequality. And that part of, you know, one of, and that that shapes people's life chances and their ability to make um, good choices, right? Or the choices that we think are good choices. So I think that, you know, again, we tend to focus on on the actions of individuals rather than the ways in which, you know, they are caught up in systems that don't often allow them to make yeah. good, what we would consider good choices, right? So if people get um, critiqued for not eating, you know, um, a balanced diet, well, if they live in a food desert, they don't have a lot of choice in the matter. Or, you know, if the cheapest food is um, unhealthy food and you are on a limited budget, what are you supposed to do? So I think that, you know, it's easy to point to these cultural factors rather than to the structural factors that are, that are shaping the choices that people make. Yeah, I, I think in general, we have a society that uh, has difficulty taking the time to really delve into and understand the sort of the bunch of structural factors that drive so much in our society. It's easier to point to behaviors and just say, look at that lazy whatever person and, and not understand what's, what's behind that sort of thing. Absolutely. And it gives us a sense of control, right? The structural yeah. things are yeah. much more difficult to fix. Absolutely. Now, there, there are some people who would agree with all this, right, and say, yep, absolutely, the political system is, helps to uh, perpetuate some clear and disturbing inequalities. We should do something about that. But, but we're some, we, we can move too quickly. And that nowadays in American society, there are groups that are just pushing for too much too quickly. And that's sort of what's sometimes called derogatorily wokeism ends up actually being counterproductive, uh, just more like virtue signaling than actually helping to advance any, any tangible goals. And what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think one thing that I would say is that it's important to think about, you know, um, the logic of, of, of those claims, right? So undoubtedly, there are disagreements about, you know, um, in the United States today about, you know, a range of issues. And I think that um, thinking specifically about, you know, racial injustice and, and, and moving towards greater racial justice 
it, you know, one of the things that is absolutely the case is that, you know, struggles for greater racial equality have always been seen as un untimely, right? That yeah. people are always, have always been accused of asking for too much too soon. Um, MLK talked about this in the late 1960s when he said, you know, um, this was after you had had these these urban uprisings in, in, in various cities in the United States. And, and, and he said, um, you know, people are saying that we're, we're getting white backlash because of, of, of these riots. But in fact, um, we're getting the riots because of white backlash. And what he meant was that there was, there had been ongoing resistance, of course, to all of the demands of the civil rights movement. And then as soon as the civil rights legislation was enacted, that resistance intensified. And so part of, of what he was saying is that, you know, that there is, um, or there was um, white resistance to progress towards racial justice. And so I think part of what, um, what I would say is that this argument that the backlash is a result of people moving um, doing too much too quickly um, is um, ignores the fact that there is resistance. There is always resistance um, that predates any kind of advancement, right? So if any kind of um, advancement toward racial justice um, provokes resistance, there's also always resistance. Um, and so the, you know, the, the, the issue I think is, from the perspective, if you're thinking about black communities, um, black citizens in the United States today is that, you know, the US from, from that perspective is still not a full multiracial democracy. And so, you know, when, when will it be, when will um, it be the right time to push for the kind of changes that would make this a, a, a truly more equal democracy? And then toward the end of the book, you talk a little bit about whether or not the American democracy is, is salvageable. And what I found interesting, particularly interesting about that is you take a look at the difference between repairing the system and salvaging the system. And this is, this is something that never really occurred to me. And I was hoping you could explain what you see that distinction as here in this context. Yes, yeah, so I turn to the distinction between repair, repairing and salvaging, because if, you know, repairing implies that what you are going to do um, is to fix something that um, has malfunctioned, but that is fundamentally sound, right? If you think about something like home repairs, you're not, you know, tearing down your house, you're repairing something that, that, um, you know, that momentarily broke, but that can be easily or, you know, or at least can be fixed. Um, whereas salvaging refers to, you know, to taking something from the wreckage and making something new out of it. And I, I, I turn to this term because I think we are at a, you know, we're at a moment where, of course, U.S. democracy is, is under, you know, is, is, is really 
having um, facing a, a difficult crisis. But from a certain perspective, you know, there the crisis of U.S. democracy is ongoing, right? And and if you look at something like, for example, um, certain features of U.S. democracy that make it unrepresentative, that create these huge disparities, things like the Electoral College. Instead of saying, um, you know, that what we need to do is to is to make these kind of cosmetic fixes, I think that salvaging allows us to think about what are the, the perhaps really difficult lifts, the really, um, you know, um, more in-depth changes that could actually make people feel like they have a say in U.S. democracy and like they are, um, you know, that that they're, you know, um, citizens who are shaping what is happening in the country. I mean, you know, this is, I think, an opportunity. I mean, it's a it's a very, you know, scary time, but it's also an opportunity to to say this isn't about returning to normal because, you know, normal wasn't really working for yeah. in certain ways, but to think about what do we really need to do to make U.S. democracy more effective. And, you know, I think for that to happen, people have to be willing to question and in some instances change their assumptions and viewpoints. And, and I'll, have, I'll say that at some, in some instances, I found your book kind of challenging. I found myself feeling resistance at some points. You know, I, I'm a white male. I consider myself racially progressive. And so at the same time, I also felt myself feeling uncomfortable with that resistance because I'm not sure to what extent it's coming from my background assumptions of kind of relative privilege. And, and I'm bringing this up not for some kind of personal therapy session or anything, but because I think a majority of the listeners to this show are, are, are white males. And I think a lot of the people who would need to be reached for us to see some sort of broad spread, broad change are, are in that same situation. And so I guess I'm wondering two things here. Is my reaction at all surprising to you? And more importantly than that is, do you have any thoughts on how potential readers sort of, I guess, might best position themselves to kind of meaningfully and fruitfully engage with what you've done in the book here? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. I mean, I'm I'm not surprised. I think, you know, I think the arguments in this book are are difficult ones to grapple with. Um, and I I I absolutely recognize that um that it will be challenging for many people um to to confront um what I'm what I'm saying in in the book. I guess what I would say is, you know, my hope in writing the book is that it would it would help us to make sense of some of the 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 trends that we're seeing in U.S. politics right now, and and my hope is that you know even if people don't agree with all my conclusions, even if they don't agree with everything in the book, that that certain of the patterns I identify and, and some of the concepts will help people to to think uh, more clearly um, with some of the you know the ways in which. Um, we're we're thinking about the the challenges facing U.S. democracy right now. I think that you know the only thing that I 
you know, that I would hope from people who, who find themselves feeling resistance as they're reading the argument is perhaps to, to, to sit with that resistance. I mean, part of what I, I, I say in the book is, mm -hmm. is like, yep. we have to learn, you know, like we have to learn to, to sit with loss. Um, and, and so sit with the resistance and, and, and figure out where it's coming from. Um, and, and see, are there things that make sense to you, even if there, there are other things that don't, right? Um, I don't expect it to be, um, to be easy, but I think, you know, this idea that, that social transformation, um, is going to happen, um, without anybody feeling discomfort, um, <laughs> yeah. I think is, is wrong. Yeah. Like we all are, are, you know, there's always discomfort in being, um, in having to engage with other people's ideas when they're different from ours. And, and, and we have to learn how to have, um, constructive conversations in spite of that. Yeah. And, and I would certainly say to, to listeners that I, while I struggled with the book at times, some of my, the most important books to me are books that I struggle with. And it's a book that caused me to see more than a few things in a different way. And I really appreciated that. And so I, I wanted to thank you for that. And that's why for, for many reasons, but that's one of the many reasons I think this is, this is a book I hope listeners will, will definitely check out and sit with, uh, cause I think it's uh, very valuable for that reason. Uh, but one final thing before we go, I always like to try to end on an optimistic note if I can. And so wh when you look at the landscape of, of American politics right now, there, there's God knows there's a lot of stuff for us to feel pretty depressed about. But do you see or what do you see that makes you feel if even just a little bit optimistic about the future of multiracial, uh, more equal democracy in the United States? Yeah, this is certainly a, you know, a, a moment when I think um, a lot of us are, are feeling very, um, you know, despairing about the state of U.S. democracy. I think one of the things that gives me hope are, you know, and in some ways this is a cliche, but, you know, our young people. I think um, I was um, speaking uh, to a colleague who was saying, you know, that when she started teaching, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, that there was all of this, um, you know, this um, sense, right, that um, young people were apathetic. And I think what we see now with, with you know, so much of the activism um, today is, is young people are incredibly engaged, I think, in many ways, you know, in, you know, in doing climate activism, um, activism for racial justice, that they're, they're really trying to um, to think about and, and be really creative in thinking about alternatives beyond, um, you know, the, 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 um, the political system and the, you know, the, the kind of, um, society that we, we are, right. um, you know, um, we're, um, that we've yeah. built. <laughs> the mess we've left them. Sure. Absolutely. No, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and I think they actually have a lot of moral clarity. You know, I think, you know, students are, 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 you know, a lot of people are very concerned about, you know, student activism at the moment. But when I look at, at my students, what I see is, is, is young people who, who actually um, have a really um, 
really important sense of, of, of how they want to live in the world and, and, and what they want that world to, to look yeah. like. So that's something that gives me hope. There you go. That's, that's a beautiful thing to see. And, and on that optimistic note, we will close. And again, the book is Black Grief, White Grievance, The Politics of Loss. I highly recommend it. And Juliet Hooker, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there at the $10 a month level or more. You get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I I do if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.